to the Stay Free Forever podcast. My name is Clifford Kuehl, your host for this monthly discussion of what it takes for justice-involved individuals to adapt and thrive. Today, the Stay Free Forever podcast is presenting its very first episode. The idea for this program came earlier this year while I was facilitating a cognitive awareness class on Zoom for seven people on federal probation. The week before our last class, I advised the group that they would each be receiving a well-deserved certificate the following week. This prompted Amber, one of the students, to ask in a worried voice, what happens after that? I said, after that, you live your life and hopefully apply some of what you've learned in this class to help you. That didn't help. Amber said she had come to enjoy the class that she had been ordered to take and looked forward to it, sort of like a support group. So we talked about it as a group and came up with the idea of a bi-weekly follow-up session which we then started doing. After a few months of that, we talked about making our chats about life on probation, discrimination against felons, and in general, adapting to life after incarceration, more widely available in the format of a podcast. So here we are, episode number one. And for this first edition, I am delighted to welcome one of the original seven. No, it's not Amber. Amber just had a baby. She has her hands full. Today, we are fortunate to meet and talk with a woman in her late 50s who is currently serving three years of federal probation, following three years in federal prison for a financial crime that we'll hear about shortly. Our guest is a Wyoming native, a high school track star who graduated from the University of Wyoming with a degree in political science. She later specialized in work supporting people facing challenges, from homeless teens, senior citizens, to people needing physical rehabilitation. Today, she's here to talk with us about her journey Welcome to the Free Forever podcast, Sarah Blakeman. Thank you. So, speaking of high school track star, what was your event? I was actually a state champion in the discus. In the discus? Mm-hmm. What does it take to be a good discus thrower? Well, actually, we think it'd be strength, but it's actually speed and form. It's not like the shot put or like the hammer throw, which is more of a pure strength type event. I think the discus takes a lot more uh, speed. It takes a lot more agility. It takes a great deal of balance because you do a spin move and all the while holding the the discus in your hands. Wow. Do you remember your mark and does it still stand? No, it does not. I did break the school record and I was the first woman or girl in uh, Evanston High School history to take state and track and field. But I don't remember. I mean, that was a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. Before we get to what got you in such big trouble, Sarah, let me begin by saying that you had what it appears to be a fairly normal upbringing. Your folks were married for 61 years and raised a big family, eight kids. Do you look back and see any signs from way back then that you might one day stray from the straight and narrow path? Not really, no. I mean, I don't think that... Our family was tight-knit, and we have a very generally supportive family, but we we had some dysfunction in our family. There's a lot of addiction there. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, because of that, um, I would say that we have some issues with thinking and behavior issues, and I was not left out of that. (laughs) I was not kicked out of the genetic pool, let's put it that way. Well Uh, said. So what was this crime that caused you to have to go to prison and for which you are currently on probation? I was indicted for theft from a facility that receives federal monies. 
And that is what uh, I was convicted of. And I was sent to uh, federal prison for a term of 57 months. Did you do the whole time? I did not. I was, uh, I got a certain amount of time off for good behavior. They don't have parole in the federal system. So, but I did get off for good behavior. And then I did, uh, they have a new thing called the First Step Act, where if you do a lot of programming, then you get a certain number of points, which gave you a certain amount of time off of your sentence. And that was implemented in December of 2018. So I was very blessed, <laughs> I guess, to say uh, um, that that went into effect just before I went in, in February of 2019. So the first step deck was in place. And uh, for the next three years, they were trying to figure out exactly how it was going to work and they implemented it. And in um, February of 2022, They told me that I was going to go to the halfway house for a month and then I would get to go home on probation. So I did three years out of the 57 months, almost to the day, actually. Okay. Um, Are you comfortable putting in your own terms, in layman's terms? Um, You you describe your offense in a a sort of a legalese way. Are you comfortable putting it in uh, layman's terms for people so they can understand what it is? Yeah, I uh, use the company credit cards to buy personal things and to pay for personal things. And uh, basically that was, I used the company's money as my own. Gotcha. Okay. So um, very early on, what was the need and how did you justify to yourself making such a risky decision with the company's credit cards? Well, it's a really slippery slope that you get onto, and it's not something that just happens overnight. You, uh, you can, you, you know, human beings can rationalize anything, any behavior, and I think that you make decisions, and you have, you have a set of values that you internalize or have if you have any kind of self integrity at all. And I think for a long time before I even ever thought about. Uh, taking money or anything like that. I was uh, making decisions that went against my self-integrity and against my value system that I had. And each time those decisions get a little easier, and a little easier to rationalize. And so you kind of gradually build up to a place where you're doing something that you would never have thought of. Well, you know, I, I liken it to addiction where, You know, nobody grows up and says, I'm going to be a drug addict when I get older, or I'm going to be an alcoholic when I get older. The same thing, I, you know, I never said to myself, I'm going to be a thief when I get older. It was just little gradual things that happened over the years. And it took years where, you know, I said, well, that's okay, because whatever, whatever reason I gave myself, whatever way I rationalized. And then pretty soon I was, the, the situation just got more and more out of hand. Sure. Do you recall early on something small that you rationalized? Um, I would say anything, anytime that you're dishonest with people and you rationalize that. I think honesty has a lot to do with it. You know, you tell a little lie here or there, you know, whether it's to impress people or to, well, for whatever reason, I think that when you get into dishonesty itself, lying, that uh, every time you do that and it just builds on itself. And then I think that that perpetuates until into a bigger crime. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Now um, there are going to be people listening who are totally identifying with what you're saying. Uh, the audience for this podcast is going to people 
is, as I said in the opening, uh, people who are either trying to stay out of incarceration or trying not to go back, but there may be others listening who are just curious. And um, uh, what was the, tell, tell us about the moment that you were discovered or um, apprehended or however that happened. I kind of knew something was going on. I mean, just the way what certain people were acting. And then uh, there was a particular day we had had a board meeting and um, they went into executive session and I went to my office and was working and they came and asked me for my keys and my credit card and said that I was suspended for the next little while while they were investigating a theft. So I left the building and uh, it went from there. Okay. And was there a court trial? There was not. I was indicted by a grand jury, and that indictment came to me. Uh, I was in a schedule for arraignment, and so I pled not guilty. And then they uh, assigned me a public defender, and with that public defender, I mean, I basically said, you know, I did do these things, and so um, we worked out a plea deal with the state. And I went in and pled guilty, and then I went to my sentencing hearing, and my time to serve was increased by the judge, and so that's how it went. I never went to court, no. Not, well, I went to the sentencing hearing, and that was, that was it. All right. Does any particular feeling come to mind from that time? From the crime or the whole time? You've said, okay, I did this, and you're facing consequences. What are you feeling at that point? Well, it's really, it's really funny because you do feel relief because I had gotten into the position where I was just juggling, 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 juggling all sorts of things because of the complications when you start being that dishonest or that, you know, you, you start doing all that stuff. It becomes a game where you just have to keep all these plates up in the air. And I can remember I was, I felt a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. I felt really, really bad for the people I had hurt and betrayed and, and betrayed their trust. I felt really bad for my family, but I did feel a sense of relief because it was finally, you know, I could start paying my, uh, for my crime. Mm-hmm. And then I could start doing that and I could start working on the things that I knew that I needed to work on. Now, you know, the gig was up. So mm-hmm. I needed start working on those things. And so I did feel a sense of relief, but I felt really bad for my family. I felt really bad for the, the, my bosses and the people that, you know, they trusted me and I betrayed sure. that trust. Sure. So here you are. Had you ever been incarcerated before? Even like oh, a no. night of wild drinking or anything? No. So here you are. <laughs> I'm not saying I didn't ever do any wild drinking, but I never got caught going in jail. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So, um, Walk us through that briefly. What's that like now? You're, you've, been, you've been sentenced and then? Well, I went to, uh, I was uh, self-surrendered in Victorville, California. It's the lowest uh, security prison type thing. It's a camp. It's a satellite camp, what they call a Federal Correctional Institute. And so we weren't really behind a fence or anything like that. I didn't really know what to expect. Um, I've had some family members that had been incarcerated, but they had been incarcerated in state institutions. I just had no idea what was going to happen. And uh, there have these websites and stuff like that will tell you, you know, how you should act, what you should do and stuff like that. But I thought about that and I thought, you know, I don't want to be incarcerated twice. 
You know, in other words, I don't want to think about this and then, then go and have to do it. So I didn't do any of that stuff. So I got there, self-surrendered, said goodbye to my spouse and went in there and uh, was just, I can remember just being so tired on my first mm-hmm. night. I was just so tired and all I wanted to do was sleep. And they put you in a room. When you first get there, they put you what is called the multi. And it's a room filled with probably about 25 bunks, right? And all they are is they're metal bunks and then they have a mattress on them. There was, it was so noisy. I can remember that because I'm really affected by noise. But it was so noisy and I just thought, oh my goodness, this is crazy. But the women were very welcoming when you first go in, they give you this like stupid dress to wear. I mean, it's really a stupid, ugly dress to wear. You have to surrender all of your clothes and shoes and stuff like that. And uh, so I, we went to uh, my unit, which was the North unit. And uh, those ladies were so nice. You know, they could tell I was a bit nervous and they, and they got me some sweats to wear and they got me some shoes to wear. They gave me some pillows and some extra blankets They gave me something to drink out of so I could get some water and stuff like that. And they were just really nice to me. I can remember I I surrendered on a federal holiday. I don't know who pulled that boner, but they weren't expecting me, in other words. So so it could have been really bad, but the the ladies, they made it really nice. And I have to say that, I mean, you you meet some bad characters, of course, in prison, but I have to say I met some amazing people there. You know, they just made some mistakes in their lives. But there was some really, really neat people. And it's the only place I've ever been where you're walking down the aisle and you're like, does anybody have any tuna fish? And like three bags will come flying at you. You know, Uh people, they're just very giving. They're very generous. They're very, they're very uh, compassionate and empathetic. And then uh, they made my incarceration those people made it uh, livable. And I have to, I consider myself blessed because I think, I really do. I think I'm blessed. I think that God was watching out for me. I think there was a reason that I was incarcerated. I think I could have been in much worse trouble if I hadn't been caught when I was. I think that um, and it was time for me to learn. It was time for me to learn the lessons that I needed to learn. Wow. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, anything to say uh, about the staff? No, <laughs> not really. Okay. There was some good staff. They used to have a saying that the way that you told the staff from the inmates was they had keys. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of shortage in staff in the federal prison system. There's a big shortage in staff. A lot of the uh, people that came to the camp they were different. They're, they're just like everybody else. They're different. Everybody has a different thing. There was some really good staff there. There was a psychologist there that I met just as I was getting ready to leave. And she was really good. She was excellent. Uh, there was a chaplain that was really good. There was volunteers that came in from the different churches and stuff like that. Uh, there was a Buddhist monk that volunteered to come in and they would uh, do stuff with us. And there was some really good staff, and there was some staff that, you know, you really wanted to watch out for. But, you know, I just kept my head down, my mouth shut, and did what they told me to do. The thing is, is that I didn't want anybody, I didn't want anybody in the staff to know who I was. Basically, if they know your name, there's something wrong. So if they just say, hey, you, over there, you know, that's okay. But if they're saying, hey, Blakeman, what are you doing? 
then that's a problem. Uh, I worked at Unicor, which is a, it's a contract that the federal prison system has with a private company. And what we did would we upfitted vehicles for uh, border patrol. And I worked there for about two years of my incarceration. And that was great. That was a great job. I learned a lot of stuff about production analysis and stuff like that. And the staff were really great there. Yeah, but there was, there was good staff and there was bad staff and just like everywhere else. Sure. What has helped you, Sarah, along the way to come to terms with what you've done? And, uh, second question, what was the turning point toward the way you live your life now? I think that um, when I went to prison, I heard a lot of women saying that they were not guilty or making rationalizations about their crime and stuff like that. And I had to think long and hard about that. And they would ask me what I did. I think the thing that um, was to be totally honest with myself, to say, you know, accept. You may not like what you have to accept, but you have to accept it. And I had to accept the fact that I had done something that was egregiously wrong and that I had done it. It was nobody else's fault. There was no excuses for it. And I was not a victim of anything, you know. And so once I accepted that, and it was what is, this is what is, this is what you did, you can't change it. So what are you going to do in the future? And I guess uh, at that point, too, there's a lot of, you know, you look for redemption and you look for ways to make amends to people. And I don't even know that I can make amends to people. You know, all I can do is say, I'm sorry, and do what I can do. And some people will accept your apology, and some people will not. And that's perfectly within their rights. They, they don't have to accept my apology. And then I think you just have to work on the way you make decisions. Where do, how did I get to this point? You have to become aware of who you are inside. You can't just, you have to become conscious. And you can't just, I don't know if this is going to make sense, but you, you kind of have to have this little being that's not your mind. And it's not, it's just this thing that's aware of what, how you're thinking and how you're making decisions and stuff like that. It's just kind of an observer that's almost apart from you. And I'm not like talking about split personality disorder or anything like that. It's just an awareness that you have. Why are you making this decision? Why are you getting angry right now? Why are you getting sad right now? What is happening? And why are you responding this way? And I think that if you can do that, then you become more aware of why you make the decisions you make why you act the way that you do. And I think I learned a lot in that process. And it's very difficult. And it's not like something that I could do overnight. It took me a long time. It probably took me two and a half to three years to, you know, I'm still in process. There's still days when I'm like, I get mad about something and I just go off. And it's like, I totally lose that awareness sometimes. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. back on it and I'm like, oh, okay. This is why I got angry. And if I can stop myself from getting angry because by being more aware of what my triggers are, then it's a lot better. Then I don't have to be feel bad because I got angry at something or, you know, you get into that circle of shame and, and all of that. So I think that that was the biggest thing I learned in prison was to have that awareness, to observe myself and the way I made decisions and why I made decisions the way I did. Very well said. Uh, in our class, our cognitive awareness class, we talked about anger as a secondary emotion. 
uh, right. and, and uh, it's, it's almost always caused by a primary emotion that is, is there, there are many, many, many of them. Can you speak to any of the primary emotions that you've noticed over time that tend to trigger you? Um, I think when uh, I have uh, no patience. I had very little patience when I went into prison. I mean, I couldn't stand to sit at a traffic light. <laughs> you know, I just always thought that wherever I had to go was so important that these people just needed to get the hell out of my way. Yeah. And so um, I was very impatient. I think that anytime that I am in pain or hurt, I tend to retaliate with anger. I mean, if something hurts me, and I don't want to admit that because that would seem weak or something like that. And so instead I get angry, which makes me feel more powerful and not as weak. So I think I do that. I still think at times that I get angry or frustrated when things don't go my way, the way that I want them to. And I've had to learn the path of non-resistance, basically a radical acceptance. Sometimes you just have to say, this is what is, and I can't do anything about that. And so that's the way it has to be. And once I learned how to do that, my anger became less and less and less. A lot of times, those are those are some of the things that trigger me. Sure, sure. Appreciate that. What tools, Sarah, have you taken forward in your life that motivate you to keep going in this new direction? Um, I do a lot of... I really started to work on my spiritual. I did this when I was in prison. I started working on the spiritual aspects of myself. And um, I mean, that sounds kind of uh, cliche and stuff like that. But you have a lot of time in prison. You have a lot of time. And everybody spends their time or does their time. You know, they talk about doing time. Everybody does their time differently. Some people sleep through prison, which is a very nice way. I'm not, I'm not denigrating that at all. I can understand the uh, attraction of that. I had a decision to make of how I was going to spend my time, and uh, I read a ton of books. I went to a lot of classes. I actually taught some classes, too. For a long time, I considered myself an agnostic or an atheist, that I didn't believe in God, and that uh, I had been raised LDS, and I had turned away from that, and I turned away from the spiritual aspect of myself all the way. So I think that one of the tools was that I started to enrich that aspect of my life. Number two, I became aware. Again, I, I developed a, a consciousness, an awareness of my behavior and why I was acting the way I was. And it wasn't just all reaction. That was a tool. I uh, started to look to see what I was letting into my mind. I can remember before that I would let a lot of negative things into my mind. I would spend a lot of time on social media. I would read books. I would go down rabbit holes about, you know, murderers and stuff like that. And I decided to not do those things anymore. I became very disciplined and determined about my life. I started to really look at my life and uh, decided that I needed to become more disciplined about things. And I needed to find my set of values, establish my set of values, reestablish them, and stick to them. And not rationalize anything. If I did something that was against my values, then I admitted it and I accepted it and paid whatever consequences I needed to pay and went on. But I think that was the most important one, that I reestablished my self-values and the values that I hold dear to my heart. And I don't go against those values anymore. 
I stick to them. I made a goal that I would be strictly honest with people. I wouldn't lie to them, which is a big thing for me because I think that that was the slippery slope that I went on. I decided that I would be a kinder person. And I, that sounds funny to say, but I think there was a time in my life I was very arrogant. And I would look at people who were, it wasn't that I didn't feel empathy for them. I did feel empathy. I felt a great deal of empathy for them. And it scared me a little bit because I didn't want to feel those feelings. So I would be, I would just kind of push them away because I didn't want that sort of feeling. And now I don't do that. If I feel somebody's hurting or something like that, then I try to help them out. And if I can't help them out, you know, I just let them know I'm there and I understand as a human being. I don't consider myself separate from the rest of the world anymore. I consider myself, we're all one, basically. I'm not a separate entity. I'm a part of the big, bad ocean of humanity. I quit setting up targets. You know, I, I used to be very competitive because I was an athlete. And I would go to war with people over nothing. They might have a different opinion than I did or something like that. And it was so important for me to be right. And it was so important for me to win that I could be very, I'm sure it was off-putting. Prison will humble you, for sure. That was something that needed to happen, did happen. And I don't want to lose that, you know. I want to keep that humility because it's very important to me. Are you still an agnostic or atheist? Not at all. Not at all. How do you describe uh, yourself? I am a uh, firm believer in the, the great God of the universe, the great creator. I'm a kind of a universalist. I am a Christian, but I also believe Zen Buddhism. I study Taoism. I study Hinduism. I think we all worship the same God. I think there's different ways that we worship him, but I think we all worship God. All those who believe. I've seen the miracles he's done in my life. I didn't used to see them, but I see them now. Yeah, I'm a firm believer. What's your life like today? What do you do? What are you about? Well, I have a simple job, and I have kind of a simple life, and I like it that way. I live in my hometown. I've lived here all my life, was born and raised here. My family's been here for generations. I work at a diner. I'm a line cook. It's a fun job. I love my job. It's it's sometimes very aggravating and trying, but I've learned a ton of stuff. The owner is a great lady, and she gave me a chance and an opportunity, and I feel so blessed to have known her. She has taught me so many things, and she is a genuine and good human being. She really is. I volunteer uh, in different places in the community. I see a counselor on a regular basis because there's still things that I am, again, a work in progress, and I sometimes I need help to uh, do those things. I spend a lot of time with my family. I am blessed that my family still supports me. They still love me. When I came back from prison, they, they helped me out. They helped me get a job. They helped me have a place to live. And, uh, you know, they're just good people. They're good, solid people that are dysfunctional as hell. <laughs> but that's okay, you know. So am I. I'm dysfunctional as hell, too. So we can all be crazy together. And I just, I like to exercise. I uh, went on a kind of a health thing in prison. I exercised a lot, and so I go to the gym on a regular basis, try to spend some time outside, read a lot. I have been looking for a church home, haven't, well, I've kind of found one, but not really, so I'm in search of that. I like to go outside a lot. I'm a, I'm a big nature person. I spend a lot of time with my dogs, and I have a busy life, but it's simple. 
And just because some people are going to be curious, you mentioned a spouse saw you off at prison, but I detect that you don't have one. No, she divorced me, um, which I don't blame her. She put up with a lot of uh, a lot of crap, so uh, I wish her nothing but well. Don't have any contact with each other anymore, and she's a good person. What question have I not asked that you perhaps anticipated, or what topic have I not brought up that you think might be important as we wind this conversation up? Hmm. I don't know that it's a question, but I would like to say that I am incredibly blessed because when I came out of prison, I had a family to support me. I had loved ones to help me. I was able to get a job fairly quickly, had financial support and stuff like that. I see a lot of people coming out of county jails, state prisons, federal prisons that have nothing. They have nothing. And it's a big problem because there's a lot of incarcerated people in this country. They get out, they can't get a job, they can't get a place to live. A lot of them have addiction issues. They can't find a place to address those issues. It's rough. It's really rough. And I would like to see, I would love to be a part of this also to the level that I could. But because of my uh, specific sentence, the court ordered that I can't work with uh, certain populations. But I would like to see more support for people like sober living in this community. I would love to see a sober living place here because there's so many people coming out of these county jails that they have nothing. They don't have anything and nobody will hire them because they're a felon. They can't make a living. And so what happens is they get reincarcerated. It's very hard. (laughs) You kind of have a big target on your back when you first come out because you're on probation and rightfully so. They're going to make you do what you're supposed to do. But a lot of times the system makes it really difficult for people to be able to do that. And I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's on purpose, but I just think that that's the way things turn out. And uh, that makes me really sad. Like I say, I've been blessed, but I see an awful lot of people that, it's like my employer, she hires people that have been in trouble with the law. She gives them a chance. And I know some other people in the community do that. And I just have nothing but good things to say about them because... That's what it takes. You know, and sometimes you get somebody and they they don't turn out. But at least you gave them a chance. I would like to say, Cliff, that your class that I took, your seminar, was really good. And I think that the group thing was really good. I think that people that have that experience, because it's a very specific experience. A lot of people you can talk to about prison, they have no idea what you're talking about. There's just something that you have to experience it. And um, I think your class was very beneficial to me and to a lot of other people because and you taught us, you know, that workbook was very good. About, I mean, I learned a lot from doing that workbook about awareness and how to think differently and how to live above 500 and all of that many things. And so I think classes like that are really important. And I would like to see them offered at a greater level to more people. Yeah, and I agree. Thank you for your kind words. The idea of the podcast was to expand this dialogue to anyone who wants to tune in and hear it and get some honest counts of what it is to rehabilitate oneself as you're in the process of doing it. Quite admirably so. There are two other parts to this podcast. One of them is to take a look at an excerpt from a workbook not too long ago by a student and read a question and answer and then get your thoughts on that. 
and then we'll close with a couple of our favorite quotes or passages from something we've read recently or perhaps long ago. Does that sound reasonable to you? You bet. The question was posed, if you are a responsive person, what rewards in life could you expect to receive? Life is uh, interesting, and I think that expectations, I don't know, that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. Yes, I would like to receive those things. I would love to see that part of my life. Do I uh, think that that's absolutely going to happen? I think there's going to be bumps in the road. I think there's going to be challenges. I think there are going to be struggles. And I would say that I guess it's all in how you look at it. I mean, and how you view the world, your perspective of the world. I mean, some people would look at the world and say, you know, life is great. It's joyous. It's I have everything that I need. I'm sustained. I have abundance and prosperity. And some people would look at the world and say, I don't have anything that I want or, or need. And so I guess it comes down to how you view the world. Yeah, that's well said. One other question that was asked of the students, what do you like about your life? And the student wrote, I like being free. I like my friends and family. I like the simplicity of my life. Yeah, I like that. That would be something that I would say, I think. Who do you want to go first with the quote? I assume you've got a quote or passage ready? But you go ahead and go first. <laughs> okay. This is from a book called Heart Steps by Julia Cameron. Uh, and she writes, I open myself to abundance from all quarters. I open myself to nourishment and to love. I receive my good in many forms through many people. I accept my good in all the multiple costumes and disguises which it may undertake. My good comes to me as people, as events and opportunities. My good comes to me as wise counsel, as friendship, as passion and delight. I honor my good by recognizing its many forms. I am grateful and attentive to the abundant good of life. All right. I like that. Tell me why. Because again, it's uh, you're incorporating your good and your bad. I think of Jung that said that, you know, there's a part of you that is the shadow. None of us are all good. None of us are all bad. There are parts of us that are good and there are parts of us the bad. But we as human beings tend to, we think we're one or the other. You're either totally good or you're totally bad. And I like being able to say, you know, there's parts of me that are really good. There's really good parts of me. There are also bad parts of me, but I accept them both. What quote have you about to share? It's a poem, and I can't remember the name of the author of it, but it's called Invictus. It goes, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the foil of circumstances, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I believe you feel that. I do feel that. More than believe it, you feel it. Isn't that a great way to be? I had known that poem when I was in school and college, and we're reading it in some literature class. I can remember I posted it up on my wall, and I hadn't seen it for the longest time. 
I was watching something on YouTube. I watch a lot of like Eckhart Tolle or uh, Taoists and stuff like that. And they were talking about Marcus Aurelius. And then they were talking about this poem. And I, it just brought back all this feeling and memory for me. It was like, yes, I've gone through some stuff, but I've made it through. And in the end, I am blessed. I am blessed. I have a good life. And I am unbowed. I am not a victim of anything. And I can make the difference in my life. I can make good choices. I can make bad choices. all up to me. That's a perfect way to end this inaugural podcast for the C3 Forever podcast. And my guest has been Sarah Blakeman. We look forward to seeing you again with our next episode. But until then, Sarah, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for agreeing to be guest number one and all that that entailed. You've uh, spoken of your situation, your journey with great heart and empathy, and I uh, am privileged to have gotten to know you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stay Free Forever podcast is recorded and produced by Clifford Fuel, owner of Stay Free Forever LLC, a Colorado and Wyoming company. Stay Free Forever provides adult and youth life skills courses via both e-learning and mailed workbooks, plus Zoom classes for any age group. Our theme music was composed and performed by James Benjamin Fuel. Editing and technical assistance are provided by Mary Tulin. My name is Molly Moore. For more information, go to stayfreeforever.com or email Clifford at stayfreeforever.com.